You are listening to the Stillbirth Matters podcast, presented by the Star Legacy Foundation, a national nonprofit founded on the belief that every pregnancy deserves a happy ending. Visit us online at StarLegacyFoundation.org. Welcome to another episode of the Stillbirth Matters podcast. My name is Lindsay Wimmer. I'm the executive director of the Star Legacy Foundation, and it is my pleasure and honor today to be talking to Dr. Mana Parast, who is a pathologist at the University of California in San Diego. She has actually been on our podcast before, and she's a great friend of Star Legacy Foundation and a wonderful resource as we continue to dig into how we can learn more about what causes pregnancy losses and how, obviously, to prevent them in the future. So thank you for joining us, Mana. Thank you so much for having me, Lindsay. So obviously the the hot topic the last two years, now I can't believe it's been over two years, is COVID. And we have been learning a lot um, over that time. But right now we're seeing that the the COVID impact on pregnancy tends to really have to do with um, how it impacts the placenta. Um, can you talk a little bit about what we, what do we know about, um, COVID and its impact on, on these placentas and, or what we don't know still? Yeah, that is a very good question. And it's an ongoing, um, uh, exploration by, um, gosh, I want to say everybody, um, that I know in this field, um, every perinatal pathologist, uh, that I know and have talked to, um, over the past, um, year and a half or so has been, um, has gotten in one way or another involved in answering this question, just kind of by default. Um, At our own institution, um, when the pandemic started, uh, we immediately uh, thought that, you know, that's going to be an open question. And in order to answer that in the, uh, in the sort of, you know, least biased way possible, Um, the best thing to do would be to make COVID infection and pregnancy an indication uh, for placental examination. And this way we can say that at our institution, we um, have looked at, uh, you know, all such placentas and we can say um, what the rate of placental injury is and, you know, how are these patterns of placental injury different from other types of infection uh, in pregnancy, et cetera. Um, so um, our um, study is, uh, is still ongoing. Um, we um, have now looked at, um, unfortunately, um, over, I wanna say 650 um, cases of um, uh, COVID infection in pregnancy. Um, and um, uh, I wanna say that at least um, our findings up to date um, are consistent with what's been published. So I can talk a little bit about that. So very early on in the pandemic, uh, there were um, uh, studies that were coming out, um, uh, Dr. Bergen's uh, in particular, looking at, you know, being in New York City at the center of the pandemic um, early on, uh, they looked at um, some placentas and saw that there was an increased rate of uh, lesions of fetal vascular uh, malperfusion. Uh, this is lesions that um, indicate that there is maybe some uh, abnormal fetal blood flow in the placenta. Um, Later on, studies came out um, that said uh, there are also increased rates of 
um, lesions of maternal vascular malperfusion. These are lesions that um, uh, result from compromise of maternal circulation uh, to the placenta and can cause infarction and damage, <clears throat> excuse me, in that, um, in that sense to the placenta. And um, so um, uh, kind of more and more <clears throat> papers that were published um, also brought attention to some inflammatory lesions um, in the placenta. So there is uh, increased uh, rates of um, uh, inflammatory cells infiltrating, uh, uh, maternal inflammatory cells that were infiltrating the placenta and causing uh, damage and uh, tissue death. And um, so now, you know, uh, like you said, can't believe it, but yeah, almost two years out, looking at all of these uh, different studies, the consensus seems to be that the um, inflammatory lesions are kind of, you know, the common um, denominator in all of these uh, different placentas. It seems to be that uh, different studies um, uh, maybe see a different extent of this inflammation and uh, the associated damage that the inflammation causes. Uh, but it seems like the consensus now is that um, uh, this uh, COVID-induced inflammation in the placenta causes placental damage and probably compromises its function. Now, I want to say one of the biggest limitations right now is that these changes to the placenta have yet to be uh, sort of directly linked to the adverse outcomes that we see in terms of the increased rates of preterm birth, increased rates of um, stillbirth. Um, and um, so, you know, in that sense, I feel like we still have a, um, a good way to go. Um, uh, you know, these are not easy studies to do. They require collaborations between um, institutions and uh, groups, and it, they require large uh, numbers of samples to be looked at, both in terms of the course of the um, infection in pregnancy, um, you know, was mom symptomatic, you know, um, the uh, there are some studies that looked at viral load uh, during pregnancy, but having all of that information and correlating that um, to, you know, the changes in the placenta and then subsequent um, uh, outcome of the pregnancy, that kind of all needs to be put together. And so I feel like we still have, you know, some ways to go. Yeah, I think that's a really important distinction because just because we see some, some physiologic um, changes, whether or not that is significant enough to to lead to the um, the poor outcomes is, is a really important point. We I think it's it's just a very natural thing to to want to be able to have an answer or an explanation, and it's easy to to find those things and make that leap when it may not be appropriate. Yeah, exactly. There is uh, I know that uh, some groups have started um, also to look at um, you know do they. Uh, not only do they see the virus in the placenta, but is the virus actively replicating uh, in the placenta? We have um, a uh, group here that has looked at that, um, uh, has actually in collaboration with uh, people in uh, the Department of Pediatrics, uh, Dr. Uh, Francesca Sonson uh, in our group um, is uh, looking at uh, the impact of the virus on 
placental cells, um, how they uh, can, in fact, directly, uh, the virus can infect placental cells uh, directly um, and replicate. Um, but again, uh, to the extent that, you know, it's, it's very difficult to detect this, especially if, say, you know, mom has uh, been uh, infected, um, you know, early or mid-pregnancy and doesn't deliver, deliver until weeks or months later, uh, you know, the question of, uh, you know, uh, when you are looking at the placental tissue just at the time of delivery and looking to see, um, well, did the, you know, did uh, is virus there or did, did it replicate at some point? And so it's hard to answer those uh, questions um, with just, um, you know, having access to the placenta um, at delivery. Uh, thankfully, um, um, as I'm sure you know, and uh, your audience knows too, vertical transmission um, has been uh, re recorded to be extremely, extremely rare. Um, it, it, it can happen, but um, it is rare. Um, but again, to the extent uh, that, uh, you know, this virus we know can infect placental cells, um, but, you know, how does it, um, when does it, um, you know, cause inflammation? How does it um, cause damage? Um, and, you know, are there ways, for example, to be able to prevent that even um, once virus has infected the placenta, you know, are there, um, uh, you know, uh, things that we can do to interfere, to prevent uh, that damage and um, potentially prevent an adverse pregnancy outcome? Uh, those are still unanswered questions. Yeah, that's, that's fascinating. And I think it, it also highlights the importance of, of doing really, really good evaluations anytime we have a, a poor outcome, because we, we know that that's not something that is, is a very easy thing for a lot of parents to consent to, or they may not really even understand exactly what is being asked of them at the, the time that they're approached about autopsy, but of course, lots of other types of testing as well. Can you talk a little bit about obviously in, in these big things like the pandemic, the, those tests can help us learn more about, about a specific condition like this, but just in, in other, maybe not, not COVID specific scenarios, what, what role does pathology play both in terms of um, helping find answers for that family, but also towards our, our search for prevention opportunities? Yeah, that is a very good question. And um, some, uh, some of these uh, questions have been uh, raised recently um, in context of, you know, overall um, placental examination, um, you know, how useful is it uh, in terms of understanding um, causes of stillbirth, causes of other um, adverse pregnancy complications. I don't think um, the, the question of how useful placental pathology is um, in stillbirth, I think is uh, in, in identifying um, a cause or at least um, things that contributed to stillbirth. I don't think that's really um, uh, um, questioned by uh, many people. I think um, uh, the majority of um, obstetricians um, and other um, uh, clinical staff understand the importance of uh, evaluating the placenta in the setting of uh, pregnancy loss, uh, particularly in the latter half of pregnancy. Um, the question um, more recently has been 
um, kind of in a more uh, as a more uh, widespread test for identifying um, other uh, causes or, or other um, uh, yeah other causes of adverse pregnancy outcomes such as fetal growth restriction um, uh, a baby for example that um, uh, ends up in the neonatology. Uh, uh, in the neonatal intensive care unit, you know what are uh, what can the placenta uh, tell us in those situations? And I think that is, um, you know, from a pathology perspective, um, it's appreciated, but maybe not as much from a clinical care perspective. And so I think it's important for um, um, us as pathologists to um, communicate our findings better uh, to um, uh, clinicians, um, also to patients with regard to how important this is. So I can give several examples. I know that um, in uh, starting um, with stillbirth, um, as, as you know, and I'm sure your audience knows, um, a lot of um, cases of stillbirth are associated with fetal growth restriction. And the placenta in these cases, a lot of times is small and has lesions that can explain, um, uh, that, uh, that can explain and uh, um, point to contributions uh, to um, Placental insufficiency, or you know, uh, you know, issues with the placenta that contributed to um, the baby's uh, lack of uh, you know oxygen or nutrients, um, and so in in the same in that sort of same context, even in the absence of stillbirth, when you do have uh, fetal growth restriction, it is very important to look at the placenta. There are many different patterns of placental injury that can explain the cause of fetal growth restriction. And um, depending on also the severity of those patterns of injury, um, you can predict what the likelihood is of um, this same lesion happening in subsequent pregnancies. And uh, that is a very uh, important piece of information for the patient um, and for their uh, clinical care team in subsequent pregnancies. There are lesions in the placenta um, that can, uh, for example, point to an underlying maternal autoimmune disease that could have contributed to fetal growth restriction. In those cases, uh, the chance of recurrence um, is can be as high as 50%. Um, there are um, other lesions, uh, for example, um, lesions that have to do with uh, abnormal fetal circulation in the placenta. Those could be incidental. And if those contributed to fetal growth restriction, you know, the likelihood of recurrence um, is, you know, tends to be really low. Um, so knowing, you know, whether your chance of recurrence of fetal growth restriction um, is, you know, 5% versus 50% in a subsequent pregnancy um, can be very important. Uh, there are also, um, you know, if, um, you know, lesions in the placenta are discovered that can that point to uh, maternal autoimmune disease, um, such as um, antiphospholipid antibody syndrome or other types of autoimmune disease. Uh, there may be um, steps that can be taken to prevent fetal growth restriction and subsequent pregnancies. Um, definitely, um, I've heard that um, aspirin and other uh, types of um, 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 low molecular weight heparin or um, other um, 
administra uh, administration of other uh, drugs can help uh, uh, prevent uh, fetal growth restriction uh, in these settings. But of course, you know, this all requires um, consultation um, with um, the obstetrician, uh, discussion of risk, um, but it all, again, begins with um, a, a thorough examination of the placenta, identification of the placental injury pattern um, that uh, then would lead to subsequent testing uh, of mom establishment of a specific diagnosis, and then uh, the discussion of risk and uh, you know, how uh, risk reduction can take place in the subsequent pregnancy. Yeah, I think that's a really important point because it, it's all becomes a part of a bigger picture and it, it's putting all the puzzle pieces together. Yeah. With um, another topic that I know you and I have, have talked about before, but another example would be umbilical cord accidents. Um, can you kind of talk about the, the value when umbilical cord is, is suspected to be um, implicated in the, the outcome? Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, and it's, um, I think it becomes uh, important to look at the placenta because um, a lot of times um, without placental examination and without any other uh, sort of apparent cause um, of stillbirth, uh, sometimes uh, the umbilical cord, uh, you know, kind of becomes the default uh, victim, if you will, being blamed for, um, uh, for the cause of death. And, um, you know, the, the idea of um, uh, umbilical cord accidents, you know, umbilical cord um, can be abnormal in a lot of otherwise um, healthy pregnancies. Uh, the cord can be wrapped around the neck um, in, uh, in a pregnancy, uh, but otherwise the baby's born um, um, healthy and fine. So the question of whether uh, an umbilical cord actually caused some sort of harm um, uh, you know, really um, cannot be um, uh, determined without a good thorough uh, placental examination. So um, on placental examination, other than, um, you know, of course you start out with sort of grossly examining uh, the, uh, the placenta, uh, again, just an external exam, determining the length of the umbilical cord, you know, whether the umbilical cord was abnormally attached to the placenta um, instead of being attached at the center where um, it should be attached if it's attached at the margin or at the, uh, you know, into the membranes. Um, all of these, um, are part of the external examination of the placenta that can point to um, an abnormality that could have predisposed the umbilical cord uh, to, um, to constriction, to obstruction, to tearing, um, et cetera. And, uh, but more importantly, then looking at samples of the placenta, the placental disc actually under the microscope, um, there are, um, uh, again, lesions of fetal vascular malperfusion, lesions that uh, tell the pathologist that there has been abnormal uh, fetal blood flow uh, in the placenta. And these lesions include um, small clots in uh, fetal circulation. And uh, these, are, these are lesions that um, can be the cause of uh, abnormal fetal blood flow uh, because of some sort of obstruction or constriction or lesion of the umbilical cord. And so when you um, suspect, particularly in the setting um, of stillbirth, when you suspect that um, the umbilical cord is 
um, you know, may have been the cause. Um, of course, um, an autopsy is helpful, even a limited limited autopsy where um, the baby um, can be examined externally um, and some measurements taken uh, to determine, uh, you know, is the baby growth restricted? If the baby's growth restricted, is it a symmetric or asymmetric uh, growth restriction? Um, that is also very helpful. So um, symmetric uh, growth restriction usually um, points to either um, some sort of underlying chromosomal abnormality um, or um, um, some sort of event early on in pregnancy that caused the baby to be small um, all around uh, versus an asymmetric growth re uh, restriction, um, which is also referred to as uh, head sparing uh, growth restriction, uh, where um, the head is um, a proportionally uh, uh, more normal, compared to the body, the body is uh, more growth restricted. This asymmetric pattern of growth restriction usually points to the placenta as being an underlying uh, etiology um, of uh, stillbirth. Um, and again, the, this is where the examination of the placenta can be very helpful. And um, in the setting of um, uh, uh, umbilical cord uh, being suspected as uh, the cause of stillbirth, uh, ruling out other uh, potential contributors to stillbirth is, is useful. Um, and then examination of the placenta, both externally and under the microscope can identify those lesions um, that, uh, that point to this abnormal um, fetal blood flow in the placenta um, as the cause of stillbirth. It's, it's just so fascinating. And I think it, um, it highlights how there's so much more um, than we, we tend to think of from the, the gross anatomy um, element of, of pathology and, and what we can learn from that. So that's, that's amazing. Yeah. I, um, I've had the, the pleasure of being able to tour your lab and, and meet several members of your team. Would you like to, to give us a little bit of an update of some of the, the things that you are um, working on and, um, some, some things we can kind of expect or watch for. Um, yeah, absolutely. So um, thank you for asking um, about that. Usually, you know, research is, uh, you know, takes so long and, um, uh, you know, requires so much um, effort to uh, sort of guide a project from, uh, you know, when it's just an idea to um, actually obtaining, obtaining funding, you know, executing to, you know, publication that sometimes, uh, it, you know, it, it takes a lot. Uh, long time, um, but also requires a lot of effort by by multiple people. Um, so um, it, it's really nice, um, specifically to um, uh, discuss these uh, results and uh, or, or progress um, with uh, with you and um, in general with uh, people that are um, interested um, in this field. And um, yeah, so we've had, as I mentioned, uh, we do have um, an ongoing study of. Uh, COVID infection and pregnancy that we hope to um, be um, wrapping up in the next few months. Um, one of our maternal fetal medicine fellows um, here has been working hard on this, uh, looking at um, uh, 
uh, not just the um, placentas from uh, patients infected with COVID and pregnancy, but looking at kind of a control group and, you know, selection of the control group um, can be difficult. The question is, do you look at, um, you know, patients whose placentas were reviewed before the pandemic or um, uh, those that, you know, whose placentas were looked at uh, uh, during the pandemic, but for non-COVID reasons. So, um, you know, the study got really big because we basically decided to be completely safe and include both control groups. Uh, so Lauren Gabby, Dr. Lauren Gabby, who is our maternal fetal medicine fellow is wrapping up this project, um, hopefully, um, uh, in the next few months. And we also hope to look more closely at uh, some of these uh, changes in the placenta that I was uh, describing that um, has been uh, shown to occur specifically with COVID, that these um, uh, inflammatory lesions and how they damage the placenta. So we want to look more closely um, at those and uh, see whether uh, there are specific uh, mechanisms that we can identify, uh, specific inflammatory pathways, uh, inflammatory cells that get recruited to the placenta um, you know, what those are and how they might be um, uh, causing damage to the placenta. Um, on uh, the um, sort of non-COVID uh, front, um, we're also, we just recruited um, a new uh, uh, director um, for our division of neonatology um, here at UCSD. And um, as you know, we also recently established our Center for Perinatal uh, Discovery, uh, which myself and Dr. Louise Laurent are co-directors of. And um, uh, with the recruitment of Dr. Karen Meston as our new uh, division chief of neonatology, we now have our, also our third co-director of our Center for Perinatal Discovery. So the three of us um, have really, um, uh, you know, sort of banded together um, in order to figure out how we can best um, push forward um, research, um, not just into pregnancy health, but also subsequent neonatal and pediatric health. So um, what the center is uh, launching right now are um, studies that, uh, you know, where we follow not just patients during pregnancy, um, uh, you know, um, collecting samples and data, uh, including placenta at delivery, but also then following up uh, the babies um, to um, evaluate um, outcomes in the early um, neonatal uh, period, but also into the um, you know, first five years of life. So looking at outcomes, for example, uh, including um, you know, metabolic health, uh, development of uh, childhood obesity is uh, thought to be very much linked to um, events that happen during uh, pregnancy, um, including, uh, for example, um, diabetes in pregnancy um, and um, other complications. So kind of looking at how pregnancy could potentially program obesity um, in the pediatric uh, population um, is a large interest of our center that we hope to um, push forward in the next uh, few years. Um, we're kind of starting um, uh, um, Ahead of kind of that big picture, um, we are uh, collaborating with uh, folks in neonatology to look at um, uh, immediate uh, neonatal outcomes of some of the pregnancies that we've been following. So we have a neonatology fellow um, 
who is working uh, closely with us uh, to look at um, patterns of placental injury and how these particular patterns of placental injury subsequently result in uh, complications in the neonatal period, uh, particularly in the population that um, uh, you know ends up in the neonatal intensive care unit. So, um, yeah, we're we're very interested in. Um, making sure that the, the research that we do, um, even though a lot of it involves, um, uh, you know, looking at tissues or cells under the microscope, uh, measuring uh, the uh, cell and tissue function, we want to make sure that um, these uh, studies that we do have impact on um, helping us understand um, how pregnancy complications happen, um, but also in turn, how pregnancy complications then um, impact uh, neonatal and uh, pediatric health. Well, that, that is just fascinating. And I, I am so inspired and excited every time I hear you talk about your work. And I am very grateful, as I'm sure many um, of our listeners are too, that there's, there's people um, as, as brilliant as yourself working towards, towards all these outcomes to make um, things so much better for all of us. So thank you so much for, for all of your, your hard work. Thanks, Lindsay. And I also just want to say that none of this would be possible without the participation of uh, patients. And we've been so grateful here to have so many people uh, so easily volunteer to um, uh, have blood drawn, you know, donate their placentas uh, to research. And it's, it's just so helpful. And, uh, you know, words cannot express our thanks. There are so many people here that, you know, would not be able to do this research um, without, you know, um, all the um, willing and uh, uh, very enthusiastic patients. Yeah, it, it truly does take a lot of partnerships. Yep, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Well, I just wanted to, to give one um, quick shout out. You mentioned your Center for um, Perinatal Discovery. Um, you will be having your, your next um, annual symposium on June 25th, I believe. Um, yes. If I have that date correct. So yes. anybody who is, is interested in, in these um, this, this type of work, it, they do a really phenomenal job with this meeting. And I would encourage you to, to check it out and, and definitely um, participate because you I, I promise you will learn so many amazing things during that meeting. And then just one other plug too is that we are very, very excited that we're going to be um, partnering with the Center uh, for Perinatal Discovery, um, and they are going to help us host the next Stillbirth Summit in June of 2023 um, on the UCSD uh, campus. So we are definitely looking forward to that as well. Can't wait. Can't wait to host you guys. It's uh, We're very overdue for that. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. For those who don't know, this was supposed to happen in 2020 or 21, excuse me. And for obvious reasons that did not happen. So we're, we're hopeful and, and very excited to get that, um, that back on track. So thank you so much for your time and for sharing, um, your, your expertise and, and really making it relatable and understandable because sometimes this can be very hard for, for people who aren't medical, but certainly even some people who are, are medical, it can be a very foreign um, world to, to try to understand some of this and, and you make it very relatable. So thank you so much for, for taking the time and, and for being such a great partner with Star Legacy. Of course. Thanks again. Thanks for having me. Of course. Take care. 
That's all for this episode of the Stillbirth Matters podcast, presented by the Star Legacy Foundation. Contact us at info at starlegacyfoundation.org to share feedback, request support, or suggest topics or guests for future podcast episodes. Thank you.